Okay, here is the memory verse that I want you. It's an easier memory verse than last time because it's uh, way more shorter, but John 3.30. John 3.30. This is John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, uh, he's, he's, he's looking over and, and he's seeing Jesus, and he's telling his disciples that he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Okay, we're going to really, really extrapolate that scripture in a little bit. But uh, we understand that leading like Jesus is not a small matter of the heart. Okay, but what leading like Jesus does and what it needs, it needs intentionality and it needs commitment. So I, I believe that each and every one of you here, you want to lead like Jesus, but what it demands from you is you being intentional about those things and you demonstrating a form of commitment, okay? It's, it's this, it's altering your leadership ego, okay? We talked about leadership ego in session two, but what, it, what now we're going into the realm of, it's altering that ego of pride and of fear right? This destructive fear and this false pride that will have a negative impact on all your relationships if it has not have already done so. So uh, now we're going to move from a self-centered heart, right? The self-centered heart that wants to edge God out. to now we are going into a God-centered heart that exalts God only. Okay? So it's a what i call a heart turnaround okay this is a heart turnaround that we will hope to accomplish here but um what this is and i want you guys to know it's it's more than adopting certain set of behavioral principles it's not just adopting a certain uh thing of attitudes or a thought process okay what it is is this it's laying down your pride is laying down your fears at the altar and allowing God to transform you. Okay, that's what it really means. So here's the first step that I want us to uh, understand. The first step is self-surrender. Self-surrender. Okay, so the power to lead like Jesus can only come from a self-surrendered heart. That's it. Anything that we do in ministry, even in our conversations, any ambitions or aspirations that we have, it has to come from a place of a self-surrendered heart. Let me give you a scripture. Deuteronomy 6.5. Okay, Deuteronomy 6, 5. It says, you shall love the Lord, your God, with what? Can somebody finish that, that, that scripture for me? Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord, your God, with what? All of your, there you go. All your heart, all your heart. 
and with all your soul and with all your might. So let me give you just a, a biblical definition because it's warranted here um, that the giving up of your human impulses to accomplish the divine will of God. That's what self-surrender means. Self-surrender is the giving up of your human impulses to accomplish the divine will of God. Now we're going to get more into what that means. What is human, human impulses? It's you having this kind of inclination to do what you want. Now, human impulses are not necessarily intrinsically evil, but when your human impulses begin to grow and gravitate towards pride and fear, that's where it becomes sinful. When your human impulses leads to selfishness, that's when it becomes sin. When your human impulses becomes a self-interested uh, uh, leader, that's where it becomes sin. But the biblical definition of self-surrender, according to the Bible and according to what we're going to be discussing here today, is you need to give up those human impulses so that you can accomplish the divine will of God. Isn't that so good? And that takes a lot. That's not an easy definition to swallow. So trust me, we're going to talk more about that. Um, so we see, and I'm, I'm, I want to give you some examples here to kind of like lay out the groundwork for you. Okay, uh, so we see that this is modeled in the Old Testament, okay, through the patriarchs of the faith. If you read Hebrews 11, you'll see the patriarchs of the faith there in the great uh, hall of faith. But Abraham abandons his friends, right, and his native country to do what? To go into an unknown land because God called him to do so. So he surrendered. Hey, you know what? I could stay back or... I can move forward and abide by the call of God. Moses surrenders himself. And what does he do? He undertakes the deliverance of the Hebrews from Egypt, right? Moses had it good, right? Moses was right there with Pharaoh. He didn't even have to get involved, but he did anyway, okay? Uh, even the prophets, uh, they heeded to the divine call of self-surrendered as being the mouthpieces of God. So we're talking about Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, what's defined as the minor prophets, uh, Jonah, uh, Amos, and stuff like that. Then we fast forward to the New Testament, and now Jesus places uh, a special emphasis on self-surrender, which becomes the prerequisite of becoming a disciple okay um but even jesus uh not only taught self-surrendered but jesus actually practiced it on his own i'm not gonna uh, you could read it on your own but uh luke 251 is another scripture you could look at okay he didn't just practice it but he uh, he, he he didn't just you know um <clears throat> uh just say it he practiced it with his parents uh the acts of the apostles they practiced it when they counted their possessions and they gave everything and all their goods to anyone uh there acts 244 
when you look at the Pauline epistles, okay, they're full of the doctrine of self-surrender as what? Paul continually says, dying to self, living for Christ, right? We are no longer our own, uh, but we die daily, 1 Corinthians 15, 31. And we are to be what? A living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1. And then Peter, <laughs> Peter's letters uh, speak on how we are to uh, humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he will exalt us. Okay, that's 1 Peter 5, 6. So as you can, <laughs> so I'm going to stop there because, I mean, there's so many more examples. But as you can bear witness here, there's no shortcuts. They are no shortcuts that will allow you to lead like Jesus. But listen to me, everybody. What it takes is for you to bend your knee. What it takes is for you to bow your head. What it takes is for you to admit that you need God in your life. That's what self-surrender means. But self-surrender must do this. And this is, this is a must with self-surrender, okay? This is a must. You must relinquish all control. Let me repeat that again. In order for self-surrender to be pure, in order for self-surrender to be divine, in order for self-surrender to be biblical, right? Because there are moments where you think someone's acting selfless, but they're still holding back a little. Ananias and Sapphira, case in point. So what it means here is you need to relinquish all control in order for it to be effective. So, ask yourself i want you to ask yourself these reflective real quick questions am i partial partial surrender am i giving partial surrender am i giving delayed surrender or am i giving conditional surrender so is it is it this am i going into a realm that is partial right So what I mean by partial, and you guys, you know, understand that I'm only giving just enough to get by. I'm just giving just enough to call myself a Christian. I'm just giving just enough to just identify with the world so, that's, so that I have the hallmark. I have the pass of a Christian. I'm just doing enough to get by. It's partial, right? 99% um, of obedience is 100% disobedience to God. <laughs> so is it partial or is it delayed? And what I mean by delayed is that sometimes at the moment, God will, will put upon you to act in a selfless way, to surrender at that moment, but you give God the hand or you tell God, I'm not ready right now to move out in faith. I'm not ready right now to accept this. I'm not ready right now to, to move forward. Or, you know, but what, like I said before, if you're not ready, sometimes God's going to cause a great, a great fish to swallow you up. 
So don't think about running away. But sometimes we just delay the process. We also delay our self surrender to sin. That's a whole. That's a whole nother, That's a whole nother topic. But and then lastly, uh, it's conditional. So you're basically telling God, well, it's 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 self surrender, uh, but. It's on a conditional basis. If such and such and such and such and such and such and things happen, then I'll be obedient to self-surrender. But these 10 things have to happen first. It's conditional. Okay. So really think about this, everybody here. Okay. Search your heart and say, God, am I acting in partial surrender? Am I acting in a surrender that's delayed? I'm putting a pause on it when you're when, when you want me to move forward or is it conditional am i putting road roadblocks in the calling that i have or the vision that you've given me and i'm just making up excuses because i can't surrender my will to your will okay so does that make sense everybody cool all right let's let's, let's keep going so Here's the question. Why does God need me to self-surrender to his will? God's all-sufficient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Why would God even need me, little old me, to self-surrender to his will? I want you to put that in the chat. I want you to answer that question. Why do you think God needs you to self-surrender to his will? Why? I, I want to hear some of your responses in the chat. There is no wrong answer, by the way. Yep, we have a choice. Mm -hmm. Yep, we have free will, and God respects that. Yep, awesome. Why does God need me to self-surrender to his will? Why does God need me? He wants our heart. Mm, good. To lead more people to Jesus, yep. To be in partnership with God, to liberate us. Without it, you cannot become who and what he wants you to be. I love that. So he can complete and perfect us, yep. He won't force himself on us. To lead us for his kingdom, I love it. To be like him, because his will is perfect, right? He's the author, perfecter. Yep, to come under God's leadership. Man, you guys are coming up with some good ones. Jessica wrote, uh, we'll find nothing without you, Lord. You created us to have a personal relationship with you. Yep, come to him willingly. Trust him. Carried out. All good, all good responses, everybody. Very, very good. So I'm going to give you some of the responses that, that I've kind of um, kind of like mulled over and really tugged at my heart. Um, so why does God need me to self-surrender to his will? Well, the first one is because he paid the price of your peace. He paid the price of your peace on the cross. Uh, secondly, because he knows me all too well, <laughs> and God knows us all too well, that temptation will, will find a reason to try to regain control of your life. And that's what happened with Jesus being tempted. There was uh, the enemy, the Satan tried to um, do that. Satan tried to uh, regain control of the Son of God. 
at that moment. Uh, another, another reason why I need to self-surrender to his will is because I am unaware of all the consequences that faith is going to take me in. <laughs> there are consequences to your faith. What are the consequences? Maybe some of you, you're going to have to forsake some things that you idolized for so many years. That's a good consequence, though. Or some consequences, like I literally, when I first became a Christian at a very, very young, uh, 16 years old, um, my family frowned upon me being a Christian because I grew up Roman Catholic, and they frowned upon that, and I had to make a decision. I had to make a decision whether or not I was going to continue to act like my family and do the things that they wanted me to do, or I was going to go away to Bible college and, and do what God called me to do. And I had to make a faith decision at that moment that I would never regret it. Uh, here's a scripture, 1 Corinthians 1.9. It says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So now we're going to go into how to be God-centered. Okay, how do we be God-centered? So, let me read to you Matthew. Well, actually, you know what? Turn, turn to that scripture, Matthew 16, 24. Let's get you guys using your Bibles a little bit. Matthew 16, 24. All right. So Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, if anyone, right? Notice those words. If anyone. Because we automatically assume that people are just going to gravitate towards God. We automatically assume that. We automatically assume that, oh, you know what? I don't need to preach the gospel in my, in my place of influence. I don't need to tell people about Jesus. There's enough pastors to go around. That is a false misrepresentation of the Great Commission. If anyone, anyone, that means you, that means me, that means this next generation of young adult leaders, if anyone would come after me, you got to come after me, Jesus is saying, let him do what? Deny himself, underline that word, deny. Deny himself, take up his cross, right? underline that, take up, and follow me, underline follow. So what are the three things there that Jesus is requiring of his disciples? It's clear right in the text. There is a denial of the self. self so you're, you're denying your rights. You're taking up your cross. You're physically holding the burden of faith. You're holding that burden of faith. You know, we, all, we, all, we always talk about faith in such a great, glorious thing. I got news for you. Faith is burdensome. You probably never even heard that before. Faith is supposed to be this great thing. 
that we have inside of us and it drives us and blah, blah, blah. And faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Yeah, exactly. But it's going to cause you to die. Faith is going to cause you to die to yourself. Faith is going to cause you to decrease so that he could increase. Faith is going to tell you to tell the naysayers no. Faith is going to tell you that you're going to have to look a little bit different, maybe awkward, maybe weird sometimes, to other people so that the message of the gospel could come across. Faith is not perfect, but it works in imperfect people. Because in order for faith to be perfected, the only one that can do that is Christ. Because he, and somebody said it here, he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. But our faith will never be perfect until we are glorified with him in heaven. That doesn't mean we don't work with partial faith. It just means we, we put everything on the gas pedal, everything that we have. But faith is not a packaged, beautiful packaged thing. It hurts. It has cost most of the majority of the authors of the New Testament their lives and being martyred. That's what faith looks like. That's the, and that's the faith that, you, that each and every one of us has here today. That's, those were just side notes. That was, uh, that was just Holy Spirit right there. <laughs> so it's not even, in, none of that is in my notes. Uh, okay, here's the first one. Remember, we talked about it before. Uh, number one, choosing God as the object of our worship. Okay, remember, so we're going to go through these, how we did last time. But now, instead of edging God out, we're exalting God only. So the first one is choosing God as the object of our worship. Okay, so if we are to lead like Jesus, we need to worship like Jesus. Amen? <laughs> if we are to lead like Jesus, we need to worship like Jesus. Now, he, he, now he, everyone's going to think of worship in so many different avenues and concepts. Well, worship is me getting on a, on a guitar with a nice scented candle in the background and a nice light behind me, and I'm just strumming away, and I'm playing nice chords, and that's worship. God honors that. No, worship doesn't look pretty. <laughs> worship doesn't look pretty because sometimes when you're in the jail cell like Paul and Silas what are you going to do you're going to worship your way out of that situation worship is warfare worship is warfare okay but what is the object of your worship so I'm gonna uh here, here's an exercise I want to do uh when you hear the word worship what do you think about? Put it in the chat. Just, just a word. When someone says worship, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? It could be anything. Put it in the chat. Let me see what you guys have. Sacrifice. Surrender. Zoe, you're getting extra points for that, Zoe. <laughs> you hit your knees. <laughs> Love expressed praise. Praising God. Walk obedience. Vulnerability. Wow. Crying out to God. Recognizing God's significance. Thanking you, God. Time, brokenness, exalting God. Yes. Surrender, loves. Yep. Giving it all. Authenticity. Yep. All that. All, all that is right, guys. All that is right. Um, 
So all those that you mentioned are what's called elements of worship. Those are all elements of a bigger doxology. Those are all, those are all just elements that comprises of the totality of what our worship should look like. So biblical worship, let me just put it to you here. Biblical worship is our human response to God's revelation of himself. You need to write that down because that is what we're talking about here when we're talking about biblical worship. Biblical worship is our human response to God's revelation of himself. It's us responding to God. It's our human response, no matter how we look at it, right? Because worship is different. Culturally, worship could look different uh, in Africa than it could look here in the States. Culturally, it could look different in the Philippines than it does, than it does here in the States. Worship looks different to different people, okay? When you look at the English word for worship, it comes from a Anglo-Saxon word. Um, and it, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but uh, it's basically uh, worth and ship. So when you're looking at the word, is the worth, it's the worth, and then it's the ship, okay? Uh, and that means to bow down, and it means to adore, okay? So we know that as uh, worshipers, we experience worship differently, but we also experience it individually, right, or corporately, okay? So corporately, meaning, right, we go into the church setting, we worship all together, or when you're in your private place and you have that time alone with God, you do it on an individual level. Uh, God should be placed above everything else, right? But we don't always do that. We, we don't always make God the object of our worship. Um, we have to ensure that God is in the right place in our hearts, right? He is the center of our hearts. Um, but how can God find room in your heart when we are filling it with other things, right? Uh, we're allowing other things in this world to occupy it, and we're not making God the center of our worship. It's only when we know God that he will be the object of our worship. We need to know God. And what that does is it takes a whole heart, everybody. It takes a whole heart, and worship, uh, has, it begins and it ends with God. Your worship always begins... It's the beginning point, and then it's the ending point with God. That's why when we look at Scripture, how, what does God say? He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, right? The beginning, and I'm the end. In the Greek, those are the Greek letters of the alphabet. Alpha, ah, and then Omega, O. Oh. Those are, let me try to, if I can write, write the Greek. Omega looks something like that. But... He's the beginning and he is the end. Okay, so uh, let me give you a scripture here. If you guys could turn to it, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. 
guys doing all right you, you, you're hanging with me so far is, is this good stuff all right i'm telling you this one was this one was was really was really hitting me man because i had to even in my own uh conviction I had to say god am i even doing uh 10% of what i'm even teaching and i had to come to that surrender i had to i had to personally come i i couldn't do this teaching without me surrendering myself first so just know that um so okay second peter chapter 1 verse 3 to 4 I'm going to be reading from the uh, English Standard Version, but it says, His divine power, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Underline the knowledge of Him. That's an important part there. Who called us to His what? His glory and excellence. Verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promise, so that through them you may become partakers. Underline that, partakers of the what? Divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. So, Peter here is explaining that God of the heaven has provided for us everything under the sun right so that we can live out these godly lives of worshiping him more fully so in order to lead like jesus we must intentionally remember i said that word earlier we must intentionally focus on knowing him see we can know about something right but do we really know it? That's the thing. Right? Moses was known as a friend of God. And there's no one else in the entire Bible that has that title. There's some that come close to it, but a friend of God, nobody comes that. You know what it is to be a friend of God? You have to know God. Right? You have to know God in such a way to have that title. And so in order for us to lead like Jesus, we have to be intentional about focusing all our attention on him and knowing God, right? So it's this intimate knowing. It's intimately knowing God. And when we know God in such a way, what that does is it prompts us to worship him with all of our lives in total surrender and in unequivocal unequivocal dependence nothing else matters i'm i'm solely dependent on you because i've finally come to this place that i can know you because i've removed all the things in my heart that was filling it that didn't need to be there right now if there are things in your heart that are uh you know dwelling in your heart that's not causing god to be the object of your worship get it right now Say, God, I don't want to be in this partial or delayed or conditional surrender anymore. So here's the second one. And we talked about this last time we met. Choose God as the source of your security, your self-worth, and wisdom. So choose God as the source of your security, 
your self-worth and the wisdom. So when, when we exalt God only, right, and we choose him as the main source of everything, what that does, and it should, it should change your perspective. It should change your purpose. It should change your goals. It should, your, at the end, your goals should become more clear. Okay? So the reality is that um, every, every one of us, we want to feel secure. Right? We want to feel secure in God's love. We want to feel secure with the person next to us. Right? We want to feel secure in our relationships and such Right? in this world of uncertainty. But you will not feel secure unless your source of security is dependent on God. And you will always have an empty void if you cannot fully relinquish that security to God. There has to be total dependence on God, okay? So when you exalt God only, right? When, remember, we're, we're talking about what? Security, self-worth, and wisdom. Right now we're talking about security. When you exalt God only, you answer the question, can I trust God? You answer that question. And your answer should definitely be yes. So, uh, Jesus demonstrates this, um, this dependence and, and, and how it works. And um, if you want, you can turn to it. You don't have to, but uh, John chapter 5, verse 19 to 20, and then verse 30. You can read that on your own time, but um, let me show you how this dependence works from the, from the mouth of Jesus, okay? Uh, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. But whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And then verse 30, what Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That is such a powerful declaration of dependence. Jesus gives us the model right here. Jesus gives us the blueprint. So who was the source? And you guys can answer this question, simple question. Uh, put in the chat, who was the source of his vision and his direction and his power and his work? Who was Jesus' source? The Father. That's it. It was the Father. Okay? You have to, and some of us, maybe you, you're here and, and you let go of that security a long time ago. Or maybe leadership hurt you so bad that it hurt you so bad to the point where you couldn't trust anymore. Couldn't trust the church, couldn't trust leadership, couldn't trust relationships. I've been there, I got the scars on my back to prove it. But here's the difference. When you begin to trust the Father, 
when you begin to trust in the will of God, you give your total surrender and your dependence on God, you walk in such a way that's different. Psalms 27 says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So with this dependence and trust, what we then begin to do, right, where we totally relinquish it to God, is we begin to formulate a healthy identity and purpose. So you get healthy identity and purpose through the security and dependence of God. What we try to do as a culture and what we try to do as a people is we try to find different avenues to get to that route. But we don't, but we can't do it on our own. So we find false security in the things that are temporal. So when you exalt God only, what you're doing is that you are mindful that you belong to God. You understand that, right? Your purpose becomes sure now because you have, you've come to this equation. You've come to this conclusion that you are a masterpiece, right? You're created in God's image. When, now let's go into self-worth really quickly. When God is the source of your self-worth, I think this is going to be a powerful, and so I think this is going to be a freeing statement for, for some that are here right now, because, because some of you don't feel like you're worthy enough. Some of you don't feel it. Some of you, you need constant affirmation of the fact. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I, I was there. I, I, I needed to hear the impartation from my leaders constantly to reaffirm me. Tell me I'm doing okay. Did I do something bad? And some of you, maybe you're dealing with that right now. And you're dealing with this identity crisis of not feeling worthy, right? Because what you're doing is you're putting your worth on things that don't matter. You're putting your worth on things where moth and rust can destroy. You get what I'm talking about? You're putting your things on your works rather than who's worthy. Oh, man. That's a whole different paradigm. That's a whole different perspective. When you can put your worth on God and not your worth on your works, what ends up happening now is that you come into this realignment and this focus where you say, my identity is not in what I do. My identity is founded on who I am because who I am is in Christ. And it changes your perspective. It changes everything. So here's a statement. When God is the source, so now that I kind of set the playing field, listen to me. When God is the source of your self-worth, you are no longer imprisoned by the pressure to do more. Poof. Somebody got free right now because of that. You, you are no longer imprisoned by the pressure to do more so you become a human being and not just a human doing. 
I'm telling you right now, somebody needed to hear that. Because that we become imprisoned in our flesh to say, God, I'm, you know, this person, you know, has talked down to me. And maybe it's even family members right now that are probably doing that to you. Maybe it's, it's an aunt or it's an uncle or someone really close. Maybe it's a spouse that's just, you know, saying these things and it doesn't make you feel worthy inside. Or you're doing so many things in order to accomplish that worth. You become imprisoned in your own, in your own way. You become imprisoned from this pressure of trying to look different. But when you let go and let God, when you allow God to say, God, you be the source of my self-worth, you be the source and the anchor of my faith. When you let go, identity becomes in alignment, right? Your goals become more clearer and focused now. Get out of that prison cell. It's gonna take some worship going to take a Paul and Silas moment for you to worship your way. Some of you, you probably haven't worshiped enough to get out of your circumstance. I'm not saying going into your closet and clapping and saying, you know, hallelujah and all that good stuff. I'm talking about worship, right? As allowing him to be worth in you. Now, don't don't dumb down worship to just music. Because that's what we, let, we love to do that sometimes as Christians. Well, worship is music. Yes, in a biblical sense, but I gave you the biblical definition of it already. It's more than that. God is inexhaustible. He's not confined by the limitations of our language. It is more. So some of you, you need to worship through your circumstance. That means saying, God, I surrender myself I surrender my worth to you because I am only worthy because of who you are. And we're going to get into some scripture, what that means. I pray that that was a freeing moment right there for, for some of you. Um, when we choose God, now getting into the wisdom part, right? When we choose God as uh, to be the source of our wisdom, it means that we no longer focus uh, on the world's view right? That dictates how we should live, right? We don't do that anymore because now we understand God's word. Now we understand that this word that we're holding right here is all the wisdom that we need. So if the, if the foolishness of God is wiser than humanity, then why wouldn't we place our trust in the wise counsel of God? If the foolishness of God is wiser than humanity. Why are we not going to place our total trust in God? Okay. And then the last one here is uh, number three, choose God. Remember this as the audience for and the authority over your daily work and life story. Choose God as the audience for and the authority over your daily work and life story. So <clears throat> choosing God as your audience of one means that your eyes are fixed on God and not on people. So the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus's day, uh, they were called hypocrites, 
right? Because they uh, did their good deeds to be seen in the world. So I'm just going to read to you a scripture here. You could just write this down. Uh, Matthew 23, 5 to 7. Because um, it holds so much significance to this right now. And this is going to be another ground, <laughs> groundbreaking moment, I believe, too. Matthew 23, 5 to 7. This is Jesus talking about the Pharisees. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, uh, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. So, let me just break that down for you. There's probably some words in there that you're like, I never heard that before. Uh, phylacteries. These are, if you ever notice, we have a large concentration of uh, a Hasidic Jewish population here, especially in Brooklyn. But phylacteries are these prayer boxes uh, that the Jewish men, they would actually wear on their foreheads and I believe on their left forearm. So you would see these little like black boxes that they actually strap to their heads and they put on their arms. And this was just kind of used as like a devotional aid uh, during the times of prayer. But this is interesting because I did a little, I did a little research on this. Uh, these boxes, what was inside of them, right? Uh, there's no money. <laughs> there's nothing crazy in there. Uh, these boxes contain four specific biblical passages. Uh, but there's one passage that really stuck out to me the most. That's Deuteronomy 11:18, and in that passage it says, uh, "You shall therefore <coughs> lay up these words of mine." Right? God talking uh, to the children of Israel these, about the scriptures. You shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand obviously they take that scripture to be literal right so that's why uh they do that but i just saw it interesting because here's the reality some of us miss the heart and the soul portion of this text now you may not say well i don't have a physical phylactery but I, I, I guarantee maybe you have a spiritual one. You may not have a, a, a physical thing strapped around you that you need to remember constantly, but I bet you you have a spiritual one. You have something. Maybe you have a thorn on your side, like how Paul did, constantly reminded him. And um, most scholars probably said that that, Thorn on the side with something health related or whatever. But what I'm saying is this when you choose God as the authority of your life, obedience to his word becomes your standard. It becomes your standard. So, an obedience, right? And we're talking about obedience here. Our obedience is born out of our love for God. That's where obedience gives birth from, right? John 14, 23, when we exalt God only, uh, where it says, I'm sorry, um, uh, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. So there is a human tendency to be aware only of, uh, uh, of people who watch us. Like we want to be watched by people, right? And that's what was concerning Jesus at that time because they were wearing these things, right? These phylacteries, they were going into the marketplaces and saying, look at me, look at me. Oh, I'm so devotional. I got this box like strapped to my head, you know? Hey, listen, some of y'all Christians probably need to do something like that because you don't read enough of the word of God. Strap something to your head, start reading the word, right? Just get a thing and just wrap it around. And I don't get this thing in you. <laughs> However, you're going to be obedient, but don't take that literal. Okay, we <laughs> that's how the Jewish people took it. It took a literal, don't take a literal. Uh, but there's a human tendency to be aware that, you know, people are watching us. So what it does, it, it gives us this kind of like this false representation of who we are in God, because we pretend to be what we're not in front of people who we truly are, who's really God called us to be, to lead like Jesus. And we also, what we do is we rob God of the credits and the glory that's due to him in our daily work and life story. So in essence, by us doing what the Pharisees are doing, we are erecting this throne of self. Remember we talked about self, right? Self. And what we're doing is we're erecting this throne of self that is causing us to manipulate others, become narcissistic, and causing us to mislead God's people. So uh, let's talk briefly about becoming a servant leader. Okay. Uh, the best way to exalt God only is to become a servant. Right? So we talked about the self. Now we're going to talk about the servant. <clears throat> and Jesus makes this point clear in his parable of the servant. So if you can turn with me to Luke chapter 17, verse 7 to 10. Luke chapter 17, verses 7 to 10. If you, you guys could turn to me there if you, if you want. All right. For those hanging in there, you still here with me? You all right? <laughs> I know I say seven to eight. I'm sorry. It, it's just never, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> it's just, I always say, I'm, I'm going to try to get them, all, get them out by eight o'clock, and it, is never, it never happens. So uh, forgive me. But um, so Luke 17, seven to 10 says this. Well, any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, Say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table. Verse 8. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have, we have only done what was our duty. Now, I'm going to explain why Jesus told this parable. And remember, we're talking about being a servant. We're talking about dying to self. We're talking about decreasing, right? I want you to write this down. Uh, the servant gives up three rights here. Remember, we're talking about self, 
surrender. So the servant gives us uh, gives up three rights. The first one is the right to self-pity. So the servant gives us the right to self-pity, right? Um, he was not invited to eat, although he had been working in the fields all day. So he's been working in the fields all day. But as a servant, you give up that right of self-pity. Because why? Because you're doing it for the glory of God alone. This is not a cry fest. This is not a woe is me fest. This is not God, please, why? You know, this is, hey, you want to serve me? Take up your cross. What does it mean to take up your cross? It means you're going to about to be crucified. You're about to be hung. And you got to be ready for that. So there is no self-pity. There is no pity party. <clears throat> you give up your right for that. That is a powerful declaration. That is a powerful declaration of being a servant, right? Um, that's the first right that the servant gives up. The second one is the right to self-gratification. So the servant not only gives up the right to be to have self-pity on, on himself because of what he's doing all day, but self-gratification. So now the servant he has prepared the master's meal, right? The servant prepares the master's meal here in the scripture instead of eating himself. Notice that. So the servant is willing to say, you know what? I'm going to feed my master rather than fulfill my own desires. <coughs> so as a servant, you give up that right for gratification of the flesh, to gratify yourself. God knows what you need. He understands that. But sometimes we put our needs before God. So that's the second thing. And the third thing that the servant gives up is the servant gives the right to what's called a self-agonizement uh, of, of himself. So it's the right to self-agonizement. Agronizement. There you go. Okay. I'll tell you what that word means in a, in a minute, but uh, self agronizement is this promoting of the self, right? To have influence. <clears throat> um, when the servant was finished, we see here, right? He finished uh, all his labors, he, he did everything. And now, because Jesus here said that he had only done his duty. You've only done your duty and was an unprofitable serv servant. So you give up your right to self-promote yourself. You're giving up your right for that, for, for that realm of saying, um, you know, my influence doesn't come from myself. It comes from God. Right? And as, as the servant, we see that here. Right, even when he was all finished, he did everything. So he should be like, hey, you did great job. Oh, you did it, yay, let's praise you. Some of us, we live on the praises of people rather than giving the praise back to God. That's what's happening here, right? He wanted, he wanted a hand clap, hey, I did it, God, right? You know, 
Uh, but <laughs> Jesus was saying, saying, listen, you just did your duty. You just did your Christian duty. You know what the Christian duty is? Here, here it is right here. Here it is. Living by faith to the very end of your last breath. That is the Christian duty. Living by faith to the very last breath of your life. So when we when and you're probably saying, oh, and sometimes a lot of people debate here because um, that word uh, unprofitable or uh, unworthy servant here, but unworthy here denotes us as believers uh, in the sense that our very best only goes as far as what as what we have done. Okay, uh, we haven't done more than that. We haven't done more than that. So that's what Jesus is saying there when he's saying unworthy. Uh, so Jesus is telling this parable, and you know, and why do I bring up this parable? Because it has context to what we're talking about here, uh, to his disciples as well, who are dealing with this Pharisaical mindset, right? Going back to the to the to the instance with the Pharisees, uh, it's not obedience that gains honor or reward. Right at the end, right? We all we all do. We want that glorious mansion in the sky kind of deal, but it's a surrendered life to one's own rights that becomes the foundation for a servant leader. You have to get that. You have to get that's the thesis of everything that we're trying. What I'm trying to tell you here today. It doesn't look pretty. Faith is hard. It doesn't look pretty. But why do we do that? Why do we want to gain the honor and the glory at the end? Because we're going to get it, but only through a surrendered life, right? So I'm going to uh, kind of pick up, pick up the pace here. We're almost towards the end, and then we'll do a little Q&A. So let me give you the results of exalting God only. Remember before I gave you the results of edging God out? Now I'm going to give you the results of exalting God only. So there's really two results here. There is humility and God-grounded confidence. So there's humility and there's God-grounded confidence. Wow, I, I see some people already saying, Lord, I repent. Wow, so good. This is good, guys. Come on, we're going to get... Now, this, this is where the freedom happens, okay? So now we're towards the end. So those are that with me. Just stay with me for another 15, 20 minutes. I don't like to put timetables out there, but just, just stay with me because now this is where we're going to experience the freedom of now that we see, because I got to let you know what you're dealing with first in order for you to get whole, right? So, you know, you, you can't heal what you don't reveal. So uh, we need to begin to understand that transformational journey and now we need to take these initial steps. So the first one is how to develop humility. Remember, we talked about pride. Now we're talking about humility. So here's the definition of humility that I got. This is a simple definition. Humility is submission to and grounded on the character of God. That's it. Nothing fancy. Humility is submission to and grounded on the character of God. So 
it requires knowing whose we are and who you are, right? Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith. There's that word again, that God has assigned. So humility is a heart attitude that reflects a firm understanding of who we are, right? Our limitations and our inability to accomplish something on our own. Humility says this. Humility says, I don't need the credit, but instead I'm going to give it away to somebody else. That's humility. So in order to lead like Jesus, it requires humble receiving and honoring these non-negotiable boundaries that he sets for accomplishing these results. And what, and what are these results? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Jesus says here in John 15, 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. You're, you're not the vine. She <laughs> say, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that he's going to bear much fruit. For apart from me, you cannot do anything. So there's a fundamental idea right here that we need to grasp concerning humility. And, and I want you to write this down. This is important. Humility is to be admired in others, but never claimed for oneself. Oh, man. I'm telling you right now, that right there is a mouthful. Humility is to be admired in others, but never claimed for oneself. How many people, I, I you know, uh, I, I heard it in a podcast yesterday. I was talking to someone the other day, and they said, and they literally said to me, you know, oh, I never deal with this sin, or I never deal with that, or I never this and that. And then this one person said to me, well, I'm so humble. And I'm like, wait a minute, you just jacked up that word. You, you literally ripped it out and you're telling me that you're humble. A person that is true, that truly has humility will never call themselves humble. Never. Sorry. I will refute that and I will fight that because I used to be one of those people that you say, oh man, I'm so humble. And I was just full of dry bones and pride. So, uh, but it's humility is saying, and it's admiring the humility of the other person, right? So it's, it is realizing and it is emphasizing the importance of other people. Pride does the opposite. Pride is concerned with the self, where now humility is concerned with others. So, but this is what it's not. It's not putting yourself down, but it's lifting others up. That's humility. It's not putting yourself down, but it's lifting others up. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 23, 12. So <clears throat> the context of this passage, it refers to Jesus 
what Jesus was doing was he was criticizing the scribes and the Pharisees who were teaching about humility, but they never practiced it themselves because they were too busy walking around with scripture on their head, trying to look pretty for everybody else. Here Christ is prophetically announcing that the kingdom will be promised to the humble. And there's going to be judgment to those who are prideful. There is a prophetic declaration in that Matthew 23, 12. So humility was always a leadership quality of Jesus. All right. Uh, Philippians 2, 6 to 8. <clears throat> I'm going to read that to you. Philippians 2, 6 to 8 says, Who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. And here's the key phrase. He humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. I actually like the uh, NIV translation here where it says he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. And that really captures the spirit of that passage. So the emptying is God becoming man, right? Jesus emptied himself and became man. So the Lord becoming a servant, this is what obedience looks like. And it took him to the death on the cross. So here's what I want us to understand. Humility is a death to self that takes on the role of a servant. Humility is a death to self that takes on the role of a servant. You got to be willing to die. You got to be willing to die. Whether it's physical, spiritual, you just got to be willing to say, God, I am on alone. This is deep, guys. <laughs> this is... This is, when you, when you really read the scripture for what it is, it's deep. Not a lot of preachers and pastors will get deep into what the real context of this is saying. But you guys are the faithful ones, and I'm not going to sugarcoat the scripture for you unless you want me to. And I'll put a nice little sprinkle on the top and say, oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. You know, you're going to make it. I'm going to pray for you. You're going to go through some hard times. But that's the reality. That's the cross that we bear. That's the faith that we have. That's the humility that we carry inside of us. And that's what it means to lead like Jesus. That's the whole class right there. Okay, guys, I'll see you later. Bye. That's it. <laughs> so now let's talk about the second attribute here. So we talked about the first attribute being humility. Now the second attribute uh, of a heart that exalts God only is God grounded confidence. All right, almost done here. I'll be like another five more minutes. Okay, so this is the definition of ground, God grounded confidence. It's knowing that God has done for believers 
rather than what they themselves have achieved. Ground, God, I keep saying ground. God grounded confidence is knowing what God has done for believers rather than what they themselves have achieved. So we learn that Jesus rooted himself in the Father's relationship, right? Uh, and this allowed him to approach every situation with God-grounded confidence, right? Jesus knew the unconditional love of the Father, right? Even when he was tempted, even there were drops of blood that was pouring in the Garden of Gethsemane, and even when he was nailed to the cross, he still held on to that God-grounded confidence. But the human ego, right, doesn't want us to depend <clears throat> on that, but wants us to admit our weaknesses and wants all the glory for their own, right? But humility, and here, here's is going to be a radical statement that maybe you've heard it before, <coughs> maybe you haven't. Humility is the prerequisite for honor. Humility is the prerequisite for honor. You know, a lot of people want honor. A lot of people want respect. A lot of people want the title. A lot of people want the accolades. They want all that, but they're not willing to be humble. They're not willing to walk in a lifestyle of humility. They're not willing to tell others about their vulnerability. Right, because they want to keep themselves on a high pedestal. But in order for you to receive honor that's due to you, humility has to be first and foremost in your repertoire. Humility is a prerequisite for honor. You cannot have honor without humility. You cannot have honor without humility. You want a Bible verse? Okay. Proverbs 15:33 The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. <laughs> it's right there. It's right there. You want to be honored? Be humble first. Stop stop trying to show me what you can do and show me who you are. Let me see your hands. Let me see your heart. Right? Tell me who you are. Like I'm learning to be a more open book. I'm like, God, I'm just jacked up. I'm messed up. But you know what? It's in that vulnerability and in that place that I can just come before you and say, God, you know, help me to live a life of humility so that when people see me, they see the love of God. That's all that I ever want. And if honor comes after the fact, then hey, it comes after the fact. If I get a title or something or a gift, after the fact, then hey, all glory to God. Uh, also, one of the byproducts of a, a God-grounded confidence is the peace of God. One of the byproducts of a God-grounded God confidence is the peace of God. Philippians 4.7 And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Right. This is the promise of Jesus 
that he will leave us with so that our hearts will not be afraid. So here's a question. How do you trust? And are you trusting God enough? Are you trusting God enough? Right? Um, It's trust and action. And it's trust and action to know that if you find yourself in the furnace of the moment, like these three little Hebrew boys in Daniel chapter 3, you won't think twice about edging God out as the object of your worship when you are faced with the flames of death, right? You're going to think about exalting God. So I want you to listen. And if you never read this story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, go back to Daniel 3 and read it. But this is, the, this is now the crescendo of where we are going here right now. Daniel 3, 16 to 18. This is, this is them talking to Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So here's my question to you. When you're in the fiery furnace, are you willing to exalt God only? And even in the moment where you're in that fiery furnace, what did those three Hebrew boys do? They what? What's the W word? <laughs> what did they do when they were in that furnace? What did they do when all, when all hell was breaking loose for them? They worshiped. Man, that's powerful. You see where it's all coming together? You see? They worshiped. Sometimes you got to worship in the fire, and that's okay. Some of you are going through fires right now. That's okay. Worship. Bring adoration to God. My worth is found in you, O God. It's not in me. And even though I'm in this fire, I'm in this state of divorce, I'm going through hell, I can't pay my next rent, or I can't pay my next bill, or whatever fire that you are going through, whatever addiction that you are facing, worship your way out of it. Worship your way out of it. The fourth man in the fire. So when we exalt God only, our perspective changes. We don't see the fire. (laughs) We're in the fire, but we don't see the fire. You guys get that? And these are the three primary results of exalting God. Okay, so remember we talked about the results of edging God out. These are three primary results of exalting God, and then we are done. Promise. The first one is truth. Truth. Remember, we talked about distortion. That was one of them. Now we're talking about truth. Truth instead of of distortion as the basis for your decision-making, right? Because you can see more clearly when truth is revealed to you. If you just write the scripture down as a reference, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 5. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 5 says this. In their case, the God of this world, the little G God, right? 
has blinded the minds of the believers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. Uh Uh-oh, not ourselves. It's not about me. It's humility. But Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. That's the first one is truth. The second one is community. Community. This is transparent relationships instead of isolation. Remember before we talked about isolation. This is transparent relationships instead of isolation. Community um, instead of destructive competition, which we sometimes get involved with uh, as Christians. Right? It's eating with sinners. When was the last time you all maybe invited someone over to your house or maybe you just had a conversation with someone that totally didn't even believe what you held to be true, right? Uh, I'm in my workplace. I'm still a police officer. And my captain, the boss, the big, big boss is a Muslim. And I'm having dialogues with him and I'm talking with him and, and we're talking. And he found out that I was a pastor. He came up to me this first day and said, hey, I heard you was a pastor and this and that. And he started talking. And, and now we're just dialoguing little by little, just, you know, getting well, reacquainted and stuff like that. But it's okay to do that. You have to do that because Jesus says that, right? Jesus would personally eat and share his table with sinners. He would walk and talk with them and all kinds of people. So what did Jesus do? Jesus created a community instead of separating himself by his commitment to the truth. And sometimes we do that. Well, you don't believe what I believe, so I'm going to put this imaginary wall in front of us because I want nothing to do with you. But Jesus displayed unconditional love and transparency in relationships. Right? Here's a scripture for you, Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of, any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then the last one is contentment. Contentment. So you have truth, community, and contentment. It's being satisfied, being content, being satisfied in all your circumstances. We talked a little bit about that earlier. So we don't need to compare ourselves to others when we know who we are again and whose we are, right? So it's this kind of inward disposition that gives birth to humility. It's this inwardness that we have inside of us, that we know that I'm satisfied in Christ. Right? Philippians 4, 4, 11, um, for it says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? To be content. Paul writing. He's writing this from, I believe he's writing this from a prison cell. So, Here's a statement that's kind of like a, uh, a reformed statement, so to say, but I, I, I like the context of it, is uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 
God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. <coughs> so here's the memory verse again. He must increase, but I must 